everyone has been telling us to prepare for a new normal. A new normal that will be in place until they find a vaccine for this COVID-19 virus. As I have been reading about what this new normal would entail, I'm surprised to find that this new normal includes practicing good hygiene, washing hands thoroughly, coughing with mouth covered. Because I asked myself the question, was this not being done before, that this is somehow the new normal? The new normal will include that those who work with food and prepare food should wear masks and gloves. Again, it begs the question, were they not doing it before? The new normal will include new processes and procedures where planes and buses and public places would be frequently disinfected and cleaned. Again, I ask myself, was this not being done before and why? And in the new normal, those with a fever would be sent home. They would not be allowed to go to school or allowed to work. Again, I ask myself the question, why weren't people who are sick or have fever staying at home in the first place? If you think about it, this new normal isn't new. It shouldn't be called the new normal. It should just be called normal. It is best practice, normal practice. The fact that it is a new normal means that the old normal was wrong, was somehow corrupted. In the same way, often in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, we have forgotten what is normal. The old normal is that which we've been practicing, and yet it's been wrong. It's been corrupted. And so God, through the Scriptures, often has has to remind us to practice a new normal, which is really just normal. What do I mean by this? Let's unpack this idea as we talk about returning to the new normal. Today, the new normal is really, in many ways, the right way, while the old normal is the wrong way. You have something similarly going on spiritually in Israel and Judah. And God was going to show them that the old normal was wrong and the new normal was right. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Micah. We're going to take a look at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Now, as you're turning to Micah, the book of Micah chapter 6, let me remind you that Micah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of the divided Israel called Judah. Micah was trying to wake the people up from their spiritual complacency and challenge them to turn from their sins and to come back to God. You see, God didn't send them a pandemic to get them to practice a new normal. He sent them prophets, and the prophet Micah in particular was to get the people of Israel to practice the new spiritual normal. The reality of the situation was that the people still worship God, but they did so with empty spiritualism. They were simply doing certain rituals, going to the motions, but there was no life changing reality. In ancient Israel, they would go to the temple every day and burn sacrifices, which was right in following what the Old Testament law required of them. But when they did it, 
they forgot the spiritual significance of why they did what they did. And they simply went through the motions of going to the temple and offering sacrifices, but it really meant nothing to them. Today in our own Christian lives, we have something similar. We would rather do something, a task, than the difficulty of really exhibiting and practicing life change. Let me give you an example. In the Roman Catholic tradition, the concept of going to confession is to do penance, to do something to make you feel better so that the priest can atone of your sins. And although we're not Catholics, we as Christians often do penance rather than penitence, life change. We would rather do something thinking that we would somehow get right with God if we do these steps or we do these actions rather than have a life change. Let me give you an example. If I were to ask you to come to church every week for three months straight without missing a week and God would be pleased with you and He would bless you, would you do that? Or if I gave you the other option to forgive your worst enemies and to love them as God loves them, which one would you rather do? Would you rather come to church for three months straight without missing a week for God to be happy with you or you to forgive your worst enemy? I think most all of us would choose to pick the first option. Let me just show up at church three months in a row because I really don't want to forgive or to accept my worst enemy, someone who has wronged me, because then that would require my heart to change. I would require real change. And so it is with ritualism. We go through the motions without inward change. So there is a lot of things we as Christians think that God likes or God wants us to do in order to please Him. But many of those things are simply us going through the motions thinking that somehow God would be pleased when in fact they're simply empty exercises which really do not please God. And that's what was happening in the time of Micah. So what does God require us as Christians today and require them as faithful followers of God then? Let's take a look at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, as we talk about returning to the new normal. In the beginning of chapter 6, in verses 1 to 5, God reminds them of His faithfulness and goodness. He reminds them of His faithfulness and goodness to Israel. And therefore, they did not have an excuse for their flagrant disobedience of God and His Word. They had no excuse to live their sinful lives. The people knew that they were guilty, and they knew that they did this. They angered God. They displeased Him. They didn't walk in His ways. And so the response of the people is illustrated by the response of the prophet Micah in verses 6 to 7. They are asking what is required for us to appease God's anger. All right, we messed up. What can we do to make it up to God? Verse 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, Ten thousands rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. 
these verses reflect the old normal, what they always did. They referred to the old normal, which was, number one, meaningless actions. The old norm was simply going through the motions in meaningless actions. They somehow wanted to buy God off with more sacrifices. Somehow they thought that as they were exposed to their sin, all they could do was just give God more sacrifices. They didn't need to change in any way their lives. And they even went to the extent of thinking in verse 7 that maybe if I offered a human sacrifice of one's firstborn, that would be sufficient to appease God for my sins. Imagine that these people in spiritual darkness thought that God could be bought off. I did something wrong. Let me just give something to God and I'll move on with my life. So Micah is representing the response of the people. He's doing so in a very sarcastic, rhetorical way. He first asked in verse 6 if he could just burn offerings of year-old calves. Would that be suitable? Because the Bible tells us in the Mosaic Law in Leviticus chapter 9 that this was the best of offerings and it expressed the worshiper's total personal dedication to God when they offered one-year-old calves. Or what about thousands of rams and an extravagant amount of oil like what Solomon did, what other kings of Israel had done in the past? Would this make God happy? And what about the ultimate sacrifice and the giving of one's firstborn son to atone for his sin? Would that somehow please God? Now, Micah the prophet didn't really believe that these sacrifices alone would please God. But he sarcastically used them as an example of ritual worship that the Israelites thought would somehow satisfy God. But the point of this rhetoric is that it was neither the quality of the sacrifice, nor was it the quantity of the sacrifice that was the important issue. You see, in the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system was set up by God as a temporary atonement for sins. The ultimate atonement for sin is, of course, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, which the book of Hebrews talks about. But Micah knew, however, that the sacrifices were meant to be an outward expression pointing to and reflecting the inner heart condition of the one offering it. It pointed to one's inner trust and dependence on God for His grace and mercy. And it was in the inner heart and the dependence on God that was missing in the spiritual darkness and the spiritual emptiness that characterized Israel and Judah in the time of Micah. This was the old normal. Just a lot of meaningless outward actions. So it is like today. Quite honestly, there are a lot of people who think that they can somehow buy off God with quality and quantity. We give to the Lord because we expect a sort of ROI or a return on investment from God. I'll give to God, maybe He won't be mad at me anymore. I'll give to God so that He won't punish me for my knowing sins. Perhaps we have not walked with the Lord for quite some time and so we feel guilty conscious-wise and so we try to make it up by giving Him more things as if God needed those things. 
What God is looking for is life change, but we're not ready to offer that. It's too hard to give Him our entire life. We'll give Him other things to appease Him. And so we resort to perhaps praying more. It doesn't have much meaning, but we just go through the motions of prayer. We say, Lord, we'll pray to you five times a day, ten times a day, twenty times a day. We'll pray before we eat. Or we'll read the Bible as a perfunctory action. Not really reading the Bible to understand or to comprehend, but just saying that we have read the Bible, that somehow reading the Bible makes God happy. Or perhaps to listen to more sermons online or to listen to more messages. As long as I go through this process of listening to people teach the Word of God, then God will be happy. Well, God didn't want Israel to have to, quote-unquote, pay Him. Neither does He want us. Instead, God wanted them to change their attitudes and their actions. What do we do that pleases God? And why do we do it? If you don't know, then you and I are simply going through worthless actions, empty actions. We're just going through the motions. You know how it is in your family. I've used this example many a times because we all do it. Our kids are fighting, and then we make them say sorry. The action of sorry is just simply that, them saying sorry. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're really sorry in their hearts. You know, it's interesting. I used to tell Cindy before this lockdown, why don't our children go to bed on time? Why do they not know how to brush teeth or shower in the mornings unless we tell them to? Some of our kids are teenagers. We don't need to remind them. Honey, do your job as a mother. How hard can it be? Well, I think my wife got me back because during this time of home quarantine, when I'm with my family almost 24-7, unless I get a chance to escape to my office downstairs, She's told me, why don't you try it? Why don't you do it? See if they'll listen to you. I said, easy. I just have to remind them to go to sleep. I just have to remind them to take a shower and brush their teeth. As we enter week number eight, I've given up. It's so hard. When I tell them, go to bed, they simply answer, yes. So I assume they'll do it. When I tell them, go brush your teeth, go shower, prepare for the day, they say, yes, Dad. But I return 30 minutes later, and they haven't moved. They're still on the devices. They're still eating breakfast. And, of course, I get upset. And I say, why don't you do what I've asked? You said you're going to do it. And they give me a whole host of reasons. I have now returned that responsibility, which I know we should share, but I've returned that back to my wife because I know it hurts my sanctification. It's not easy, but it's real life. It's a picture of real life that what we say we don't do. And words mean nothing if they are coupled with worthless, meaningless actions. In the spiritual life, the old normal is that which is doing meaningless things. 
That's why as Christians, it is important that we embrace the new normal. We'll talk more about that. But in the Christian life, that when we live out our lives, there is always a reason for why we do what we do. Or at least we know the reason for why we do what we do. Take communion. It is a symbolic reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection, which grants us eternal life and a purpose for living. Jesus commands it Himself that we are to observe it so that we have a time for self-reflection and self-examination or then we can ask for repentance and forgiveness so that we can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, challenge ourselves towards life change to be more Christ-like. But many people simply take communion by simply going through the motions without ever understanding the deep significance of this wonderful ordinance. There isn't anything magical about it. You don't earn grace by taking of the elements. You don't get saved from it. You don't earn more of God's blessing. And yet, for many, we simply go through the motions in our church once a month without placing any spiritual significance in its observance. Or we pray. We know that we are to pray to acknowledge our thanksgiving to God, for example, for the food. We are to pray to admit that we are not able to do something, but God is able. But I think most of us simply pray because we feel that we need to pray right before we eat because that's what's taught us. As if somehow, if we don't pray, we'll choke on a fishbone. Or if we don't pray before we eat, we'll get food poisoning. Or sometimes when we pray and we thank God for the food, the very next words of our, out of our mouths are words of complaint about the food. It really shows why we pray when that which follows our prayer totally negates what we pray about. Or why do we read God's Word? Do we read God's Word to understand, to learn from it? Or is it for us something we have to do as a checkoff list so that we've done our part, so that we won't feel guilty when we watch Netflix or we watch our series? You see, there are a lot of things that we really need to examine for why we do what we do. For example, if I were to ask you in prayer, does the Bible teach that we must close our eyes and fold our hands when we pray? No, it doesn't. And yet, why do we teach our children that as if that's the only way to pray with eyes closed and hands together? Well, the reason for why we ask children to do that is so that they won't be distracted. If their eyes are closed, they won't be looking around. If their hands are clasped together, they won't be hitting their friend or sibling. Or some of you think that it is the sinner's prayer that saves you. No. The sinner's prayer where you express that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, one who's died for you, is only reflecting. It's, it's words that's reflecting what's in your heart. The prayer itself does not save. You can believe that in your heart without ever praying the so-called sinner's prayer and still be saved. 
The things we do, we must know the reason for why we do it. And when we do something, we should always remember the significance of why we even do it. Sadly, the old normal has been the normal for so long in our lives that it has amounted to worthless actions, meaningless actions. And God understood that these Israelites were simply going through the motions. We sinned, Lord. Well, we'll make it up to you. We'll give you more sacrifices. But God wanted them to change to a new normal. Well, what is this new normal that God expects of them and wants them to live out? It is a new normal where it is a life change towards godliness. A change of life towards godliness. Look what Micah writes in verse 8 of chapter 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God's response must have surprised them. He talks nothing about sacrifices. He simply wanted obedience shown in justice, in loyal love, in humility, three characteristics that were lacking among the people. God does not want His people to be related to Him only in ritualistic ways, but to be related inwardly. To obey Him because they desire to, not because it was a burden to them. And that requirement was a change in behavior, a turning from their ways, a new normal, which is a life change towards godliness. In our context, it's not coming to church, it's not reading the Bible every day, it's not praying before three meals and before you go to bed or when you wake up. These are actions by which it should lead us to a life of change. Or these are the actions that flow out of a heart that has been convicted, a heart that is turned from their wicked ways. That's why in any message, when you listen to a message virtually, online, or physically here in church, the most important part of the message is when you apply the truths of the Bible. That's the most important. It's not you remembering a funny story. It's not you being able to memorize the three or four outline points. It's for you to be able to apply in your life the truth that has been expounded from God's Word. Here, God requires of them three things. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's just take a look quickly at these three things with a little bit more depth. The first of these new normals that God wanted the people of Israel to do was to do justly. To do justly. This refers to how we treat others. It, it focuses on our relationship to one another we are to be fair in our dealings with one another. It's not simply paying lip service, but the actions which are an outflowing of Christ's living in our lives, if it were to apply to us today. Simply put, it is dealing rightly with people. 
not in ritualistic actions, but how you and I deal rightly with one another. It's simply the golden rule. Now, the golden rule is found nowhere in Scripture, but it is scripturally based. And many of you know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would want to be done unto you. That's the very basic idea of to do justly. If you treat people fairly, then your relationship from your heart towards them is one that is godly, one that is Christ-like. Treating people as people is how God sees them. Sometimes we need to be reminded simply to treat people with kindness, fairly, with justice. I remember a few years ago, I was speaking at a national convention conference in Baguio. Now, from Manila to Baguio, that's about a five to six hour drive. But it took me almost 16 hours to get from Manila to Baguio. And the reason it took so long was because the fan belt broke in the car that was driving me there. And so uh, we pulled over and waited at a Jollibee in Conception Tarlac and ended up being there for six hours. Why would I stay in a Jollibee for six hours? Well, because the mechanic was trying to fix the fan belt. The local shop, real close to the Jollibee. And the mechanic kept saying, oh, just, sir, 15 more minutes, 30 more minutes, we'll get this fixed. And he kept saying that for about six hours. You know, uh, as I sat there, the frustration grew. I needed to speak that night in the opening ceremony of the conference. And I wanted to blame someone. Blame the driver for not checking the fan belt. Blame the car for being old. Blame the mechanic for incompetence. Blaming the supply store for not having a fan belt that would fit my car. But then I caught myself, I remember as I wrote in my journal, it's no one's fault really. The fan belt simply broke. It snapped. It had reached its life. So easy to blame someone. When you blame someone, then you realize life hasn't been fair and it leads you to a very dark place in your heart. But no one was to blame. And when you realize no one was to blame, then you can begin to see that there is a silver lining in all of this and the silver lining being that in those six hours in Jollibee, I got to eat lunch, snack, and dinner there. Something my wife would never allow me to do. But treating each other justly, it's difficult in life. Treating them fairly as you would want to be treated. But if Christ is in your life, and you follow His example, and your life is changed in a great desire to live out Christ's likeness to others, then it is easy or easier to treat people right. And that's why our hearts have been warmed when we see that during this coronavirus pandemic that people have gone out of their way to treat each other with kindness to help those on the medical front line, to those who are first responders, who are putting their life on the line. We see so many younger folks helping those who are seniors to buy grocery and medicine to check up on them and to check in on them. And it warms our heart. And many have commented 
that we hope that our community would still be like this. You hear internationally about taxi drivers like in Spain who drive sick people to the hospital when no one else would transport them. Or people here in our own country who begin to sew PPEs for those on the front line who are not able to secure one. These acts of kindness towards other human beings shouldn't be exceptions. It should be the new normal. It should be simply normal. Everyday kindness should be the norm for Christians, especially if they have Jesus Christ in their heart and they desire to live out their life for His glory. I hope you understand that the old norm is the wrong way. The new normal is to do justly, to treat each other with kindness. And not only should it be the new norm, it should simply be the normal act that we do. The second thing that God tells the people through the prophet Micah is, number two, the second new normal is to love mercy. To love mercy. In the Hebrew, this word is hesed, which means loyal love. Uh, it focuses on our relationship with each other, but it also involves a relationship with the Lord, a loyal love that God shows upon us that we are to show others. It is a loving kindness to be carried through because of our love for God and a love for His people. You know, God is looking for men and women who show mercy and loving kindness to each other even when it is not something normally we would do. Mercy is not about fairness. There is no fairness in mercy and grace. You see, this second admonition to implement a new normal in our life goes beyond just simply treating people justly. It goes on to talk about treating and showing mercy. Giving people what they do not deserve. That's even harder to do. And the only way you and I can show mercy consistently to one another and to even people we don't like is because Christ has changed our hearts. He has changed the very person of who we are. God doesn't want more sacrifices. He wants us and He wants the people of Israel then to have a changed heart in how they show mercy to one another. In the great American Civil War, a conflict that was a bloody one between the North and the South. After the South lost and the Confederates surrendered to the Union North, the President, then Abraham Lincoln, spoke to the large crowd from the balcony of the White House. He told them about his policy that he had in mind for the South. And it was a very kind policy to try to restore both sides. At the end of his speech, one of the senators asked him, what shall we do with the rebels? Speaking of the southern confederate soldiers. The vindictive crowd shouted back, hang them, hang them. It was then, as this story goes, that Tad, the 11-year-old son of Abraham Lincoln, then turned to his father and said, no, no, Papa, not hang them. Hang on to them. Hang on to them. 
That's it, Lincoln joyfully replied. Tad has it. We must hang on to them. And Lincoln began to heal a nation deeply divided. And he was honored in American history as the greatest of presidents because he showed mercy. Our love of mercy and compassion really shows a changed life. It changes the very perspective of how we live. When you show mercy to one who has done wrong to you, it's not simply going through the motions. You cannot go through the motions of showing mercy and grace. It is real life. You only show mercy and grace when your life has been changed. If it is not a part of your inner life, you and I will not show mercy. But if it is a part of who we are, if Christ has changed us, then mercy and grace will begin to flow out of our lives. The third thing that God reminds the people of Israel and reminds us today is to walk humbly with your God. He wants to show them, number three, the third new normal was to walk humbly with God. That's a life that's marked by modesty, where the foundation is a deep trust and dependence on God rather than arrogantly relying on your own abilities and talents. It goes back to the question of how we view ourselves. How do you really see yourselves? It doesn't mean you have to self-depreciate yourself all the time, but it is a spiritual awareness, a conviction, an acceptance in your heart that apart from God, you and I can do nothing. I think this pandemic has shown people to be who they really are. I don't care if you are the smartest scientist or the most learned in, in the medical field. No one has been able to figure out this virus. They are surprised that seemingly some people who have contracted the coronavirus and have beaten it have somehow contracted it again. It isn't following seemingly the natural course of previous viruses where your body develops antibodies and you can't get it again. It's a very humbling experience. Everyone around the world, no one knows. Everyone is guessing. Everyone is doing their best just to get their hands around this pandemic. It's very humbling. But maybe this is the defining wake-up call for our generation, a generation that has so overly been dependent upon their own abilities and talents to say that in the new normal, or it should be the normal way, that as we relate to God, we humble ourselves and we walk with Him in humility. It is a total life change. In fact, it is a life perspective. If you really walk humbly with God, then you will walk humbly in, a, in obedience to His Word. Or when the Bible says something, you accept it. You don't try to argue and tell God, you don't understand the situation. You don't understand our culture today. We simply say, Lord, this, this is your biblical principle, and we must follow it. This is walking with the fear of the Lord, a, a reverence, an attitude that we see Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we are nothing compared to what He has created, and yet He so lovingly cares for us and calls us children and we see that as the highest of privileges that we 
worship him every day in the way we live. God in his character demands respect. This is who he is. And to walk humbly before him is really indicative of a life change. William Barclay tells the story of Pideratos who lived in Sparta in ancient Greece. A group of 300 men were to be chosen to govern Sparta. Though Pideratos was a candidate, his name was not on the final list of candidates to choose to govern Sparta. Some of his friends came and sought to console him, but he simply replied, I am glad that in Sparta there are 300 men better than I am. And Pideratos became a legend because of his willingness to stand aside while others took places of glory and honor. Pideratos wasn't the greatest, but he was honored for his humility, his outlook on life. Can that be ours? You know, there is emptiness in greatness, but there is fulfillment when one in humility, walks with God. There was a tennis star of a generation past. His name was Boris Becker. He was on top of the tennis world, yet he was on the brink of suicide. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. He says, I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. But Becker is not the only one to feel this sense of emptiness. You see, as someone writes, the echoes of a hollow life pervade our culture. One doesn't have to read many contemporary biographies to find the same frustration and disappointment. Jack Higgins, author of the successful novels, and The Eagle Has Landed, was asked what he would like to have known as a boy. His answer, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. I think that's why God knew that there is nothing on the top, that He tells us that the new normal in how we live should be a life change where we walk humbly with God. Because it's really for our benefit. We find significance and a life worth living when we walk humbly before God. Because it takes us away from an empty pursuit in trying to live out our own greatness. There's nothing on top. And I hope you won't spend all of your life trying to aim for something only to find out at the end of your life there's nothing there. In these three admonitions from the Lord, you see that there is a progression from what is external to what is internal, from a human relationship to a divine relationship. Yes, the Lord asks the people to worship Him in formal ways, but the primary desire of God is for an inner heart attitude that is marked by the characteristics that are articulated in verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. God enjoys worship when we do so with order and with excellence and with clarity and with preparation. 
But what is most important to him is the inner heart attitude that expresses a true life change. And this is what is enumerated in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not going through the motions. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Are you willing to live out this new normal, this spiritual new normal? Will you simply make it normal in your life? The old normal of going through the motions and of external meaningless action is no good in God's eyes. The old normal wasn't working. Will you embrace the new normal? Will you return to the new normal? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a wake-up call to all of us that there are many things we do that we simply do going through the motions and it has no meaning to us. We have lost the spiritual significance of why we read your word. We pray that the words that come out of our mouth mean nothing. We give, but it's not done joyfully and we only give because we think we can get something out of you or to make amends. The things we do do not come because it is an outflowing of our walk with you. We do things because it is something we think we have to do. Challenge us to live out a new normal. Help us to return back to the normal, the desire that you have for us, which is to live out changed lives, lives that embrace godliness, lives that are Christ-like in all that we do, in speech, in thought, in action. Bless your people. May the Holy Spirit continue to do the work of conviction and transformation until the day we see you. May we desire to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.